Well, good morning. It's early for some and not so early for others. Uh, I'll be first to admit, I didn't make it last night. <laughs> I didn't make it to midnight. I was uh, fast asleep probably by about 1030. <laughs> Jen's over there just rolling her eyes at me. <laughs> she brought in the new year by herself. But couldn't find any better time than to preach and discuss John 7, 1 through 9, uh, than today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the sovereignty and time and our lowered expectations. Um, today we're going to begin the seventh chapter of John's gospel. So please uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 7. And we're going to talk about the term gospel. Uh, it's become a term that's very loosely used today. Uh, and it's often a word that we take for granted. We sit there and discuss and talk about, let's talk about the gospel. Let's share the gospel. But I ask you, what is the gospel? So often we have this preconceived notion of what we think words mean or we, we've used them so much. We've kind of grown desensitized to certain words. You know, uh, so when we go back and we look at what the gospel means or what the word means and how it was used, uh, it, it's a way to proclaim the good news. When it's used in scripture and outside of scripture, it's news, good news, a message to be proclaimed. And in order for it to be good news, it has to be something that is being looked forward to or there's some sort of rescue or something that happens in history that makes it good. There has to be a problem or an issue in order for this news to be good. So I want us to remember before we begin John 7, what is this gospel? And as I've said before, John is a black and white individual. He likes to throw punches. One, two. He hits you right in the gut. There is no ambiguity in his words. He comes right out and says it. So if you're that individual that has a hard time reading between the lines, well, welcome to the book of John. Because it's black and white. It's crystal clear. You have to remember, when you read the Gospels, yes, Gospels, four, each author is writing with a specific intent. Luke I love Luke because Luke is scientific. Luke is the one that likes to provide proofs. Here's why you should believe, and that's why there's Luke's and Acts, or Luke book two. Okay, but John, John writes for a very specific reason, and he comes right out and tells you. So let's look at first the purpose of John, which he brings up in John 20, verses 30 through 31, and this is something we've discussed before. Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So right there, that tells us that he's not there to offer all these proofs, okay? But these are written, so he's telling you why he's writing this book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. There's no question what he's saying here. Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. 
There's no question that he is claiming that Christ, Jesus, is divine. The one and the same. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, I told you John doesn't hold punches. Well, I want you to look back at John 1, 1 through 5 real quick. And look how he starts his gospel. In the beginning. Now, what did we just read? What did Brother Matthew just read for us? The creation, right? In the beginning. What, how does John start? In the beginning was the word. Is there any doubt what he is talking about here? Since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation was the word. And the word was with God. Means he's always been there. And the word was God. There is that divine talk again. One and the same. He was, the, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when you read John, understand what John's purpose is while you're reading. He is showing you and proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you and just lift up your name in praise and give all glory and honor to you, Lord. We just ask that these words that we begin to read today and discuss today penetrate our hearts, that the scales are removed from our eyes and we begin to see your character. We begin to realize our depravity and the reason for life, the reason we need rescuing, Lord. We've just celebrated the immeasurable grace that you gave us that you provided for us through your son, the gift of life. Lord, we pray that as we begin this new year, that this life, this remembrance of Christ Jesus, we carry with us throughout the year, that it invokes a spirit in us in which we can live like no other. That there is no doubt that we are disciples, that we are followers that we are believers lord we thank you for providing for us lord we thank you for this precious gift of life and the very words in which you've decided in such wisdom to share with us it's through your son's name we come amen so a couple weeks ago Brother Matthew concluded the sixth chapter of John with many of the disciples leaving Jesus. Why? Because he said some hard things. They couldn't wrap their mind around it. It, it, it was offensive to them. Right? They, they were no longer able just to get stuff. It was no longer the cool thing to do. But before I go any further and discuss why his disciples left, 
We're going to look at the family, and we're going to read John chapter 7. So if everyone would please stand with me. Open your Bibles to John 7. Let's read the word together. After this, talking about John 6, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. You may be seated. At first sight, it doesn't appear that there's much going on here. It's just kind of introduction to another chapter. But there really is quite a bit to unpack. One of the theologians I really enjoy reading and really enjoy listening to, and it was just because he was so instrumental uh, in my understanding of Scripture, was R.C. Sproul. And one of the things he really touts is look for the drama in Scripture. Now, for those of you that have sat in one of my Sunday school classes, especially with the youth, I talk about the drama. Look for the The Word of God is not boring. We it's not like the dry eye guy sitting there in a very monotone voice, okay? That's not how the scriptures would be read. There's punctuation. There's feeling. Words mean something. And we've got to look at scripture that way. And so we look for the drama. And there's drama in this section. Now, as I mentioned before, I also use the acronym COMA, Right? Context, observation, meaning, and application. In everything we read, we need to look for the context. What sticks out to us? What does God mean by it? And then what I call the so what? The application. Now what do I do with it? When I read this passage of scripture, this is what we're going to look at today. So first, one of the first observations we see is this feast of booths or the tabernacles. Why would John mention that? Why would John mention that? From the very beginning in verses 1 and 2, he talks about, at this time, the Feast of Booths. It's a placeholder. This is telling us what is going on right now and what is required, and why this next section is so important. There is no ambiguity in his gospel. So, by mentioning the Feast of Booths, John provides us with the context. The who, what, when, where, and why of his next section. What is going on? Now... We hear that, and oftentimes when we read this, we'll just skip on by. Oh, it's just another holiday. Move on. It's just something else that's going on. But we have to stop. 
Remember, look for the drama. So look it up. What is the Feast of Booths? Before you go any further, understand what is going on. So if we go back to Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 36, verses 42, Nehemiah 8, 18, Exodus 23, 16 through 17, we begin to realize what the Feasts of Booths are. It's a seven-day celebration. It is a third pilgrimage feast. Now, what I mean by third pilgrimage, it is the third time or the third feast in which requires all males to travel back to Jerusalem, to go back to Judea. Now, think about it. A third time, no matter where you're at in Israel, you're to go back to Jerusalem. To what? To celebrate God. So this Feast of Booths, or the Feast of the Tabernacle, has a very specific meaning. They were to go back and give thanks to God for his provisions in the wilderness. To celebrate that. A remembrance. To don't forget that God is the provider. To not forget that God is in control. That God provided for the refugees. So how were they not to forget? Well, they were to, to have offerings. For seven days they were not to work. For seven days they were to do nothing but praise God. And in those seven days... They were to live in stick huts. They would go to the palm trees, and they would pull off branches, and they would make these little huts. And that is how they were to live. Why? To remember what happened when they left Egypt. It was a way to have that connection with the past. To remember that they were set apart from the rest of the world to be with God. And in that, there were certain roles and responsibilities that they were to have. People were supposed to be able to look at them and say, that's one of God's chosen people. Why? To testify to God, to be a witness for God, to draw people's attention to God. So why is John bringing this up? Well, one, it is now seven months since the Passover. So in chapter 6, we talked about the Passover. That chapter 6 is in the time of the Passover. So now we're seven months ahead. From chapter 6 to chapter 7, seven months have spanned. Seven months. And when we look at like John 20, when he sits there and says there are many more things that happened that I'm not proclaiming, this is one of those things. John does not talk about what happened in these seven months. But you can go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and look at what's happened in those seven months. In those seven months, Jesus is performing miracles. He's healing the sick. But more importantly, he doesn't have the large crowd around him anymore. He is staying on the outskirts of Judea. He is staying away from Jerusalem. Why? 
Well, John tells us they want to kill him. There's turmoil, right? Where are the Pharisees? Where are the Sadducees? These people that are taking offense to what Jesus has said and what he is doing. And there's this animosity that's brewing. There's also fear. Because who do the people think Jesus is going to be? He's going to be a King David. He's going to take over the area. He's going to be this mighty military ruler. So there's all this angst and turmoil against Jesus that is happening. And trust me, he's on the outskirts. Don't think they've just closed their ears or they're not hearing the news. The things that are happening, what are people doing? They're talking. Okay? People are talking. Can you believe it? Guess what I saw? So he stays on the outskirts doing. But what does he do besides that? Those are the small things. We look at those as the big things. Those were the small things. During this time, Jesus is concentrating on his disciples. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you look at what's happening in these seven months, Jesus is concentrating on his disciples. Why? It's about a relationship. It's about developing clear understanding of who he is and why he's here. And in those, we still get, they don't get it yet. They don't get it yet. In Acts, they get it. But he's taking the time. These individuals are going to be his church. They're going to be sent out to start the church. So when we read John 1 through 9, we begin to see why the Feast of the Tabernacles is so important. It's a placeholder. It sets the time. It sets the mood. What's going on? Well, why is this important? Why was Jesus here? They're missing the point. God is the provider. The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, is supposed to be the fact that Jesus is the provider. That there's nothing you have that God didn't provide. And here, God's providing Jesus. He's providing the Messiah, the promise, the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And they're not getting it. And that kind of helps us set the mood. This, this is supposed to help us remember what is supposed to be the mood that's going on in the area. All these people are supposed to be traveling. Well, guess who that's supposed to include? It's Jesus. Jesus is Jewish, so where's he supposed to go? And so his brothers tell him, hey, let's go to Judea. Now, realistically, if you knew 
If you were to go, sit there and go to Lexington, and there was someone going to be there to kill you, would you go to Lexington? No, not unless you're a UK fan, right? <laughs> okay. So why would Jesus go? Well, the other reason this is important, because in five more months, Jesus will die. Think about that. Think about that when you read this section. This is a placeholder. This is a time holder. This is supposed to be etched in our heads of what is going on. In five months, Jesus will enter Jerusalem, be welcomed. People are waving palms. And three days later, we'll be hanging on a cross. In five short months. In one chapter, we spanned seven months. And in five more, Jesus is going to die. The hostility that's there. Kind of sobering, isn't it now? Remember, read for context. Don't just let things go by because it changes everything. God's words mean something. It wasn't his time to enter yet. But is it that? No. It was because he wasn't going to enter in the way his brothers intended him to enter. Now, I say brothers. Some of you might be questioning, what are you talking about? Well, guess what? Jesus had brothers. Yes, plural. Plural. Okay. If you go to Matthew 12, 46, okay, or Matthew 13, 55, you will see that there are four brothers named. Matthew 13, 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So there's four brothers that are traveling with him. Now think about this, okay? How many of you have siblings? Raise your hand. How many of you have siblings? Do your siblings know a lot about you? Your ups and your downs? Your good times, your bad times? Okay? What do you think his brothers know about Jesus? Think about being Jesus' brother. Okay? From a very early stage, Jesus was already teaching. Ah, oh, here comes Mr. Know-it-all. Think, think about that meeting. Mr. Know-it-all. Who are we talking about here? Kind of reminds you about something, Right? Think about Jacob, <laughs> you know, having the God's providing him his, his dreams and what his brother's doing. Think about Jesus' brothers. What do they think about Jesus? What do you think Mary and Joseph, their parents, are telling them about Jesus? You think it was hidden in a secret? No. 
but what's in their minds is the fact that they're with everybody else, thinking he's going to be this great military leader, that, and that's why they're encouraging him to go, right? Because they tell him, leave here and go to Judea. For no one works in secret. So they already know he, there's a purpose, right? That he's supposed to be doing something. And they've seen what he's been out there doing. They've seen him healing the sick. They've seen him raise the dead. They know everything that's going on. They've seen him fill the wine. They've seen him fill, feed 5,000, feed 4,000, walk on water. They hear all this stuff. There's no doubt that Jesus is special. But they think he's going to be this king, this ruler. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Jesus, it's time to come forward and say who you are. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What's that sound like? Brother. You have the power. Stand up now. Take control of the world. Do these things. Show who you are. What's that sound like? Remind you of the temptations of Satan? Didn't Satan tell him to do the same thing? If you're God, if you are who you proclaim to be, should you not? And what's he tell Satan? not my time my way is not your way this lowered expectation that is beginning to come forth it's this lowered expectation that's going to hang Christ on a cross see what we have to realize and remember is God's way may not necessarily be our way. That our will, our ways, the way we want things done are corrupted by sin and are faulty. Now I know there's been several times in life where I've wanted something at a specific time or a certain way and it just hasn't come that way. I'm like, oh, really? And it's so much better later on as time passes. It's kind of like that Garth Brooks song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. Things were so much greater afterwards when it was on God's time and not mine. See, Jesus understands the reason that his brothers want him to go to Judea isn't necessarily to celebrate the Tabernacle of Feasts. It's because their heart condition wants them to start to show this power that he has. To stand up and take control. And I'm sure there's a part of them that goes, that's my brother. Because see, what's one of the things that we learn in history when rulers take control? Who's with them? The family, right? The family. They end up being in control of something or they're going to have high government thing. Think about who they are right now. They are a carpenter's son. 
They were blue-collar people. And now they're seeing this opportunity or this chance to rise to the top. But they don't realize what their motivations are at this point. How corrupt they are. How sinful they are. How much of the world they have become part of. They don't understand why Jesus is here yet. He said it, he's told them, but it hasn't rung yet. There's still this misunderstanding. See, in Mark 1, 36 through 38, we read right off what one of the purposes of Jesus was, because he says, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I've come. Why is he there? He's there to preach the word of God. He's there to help correct understanding, to tell them, you have got it wrong, you're not understanding. That's what sin does, it tweaks our understanding. It's like looking through scratched up glasses. We don't see the world for the way it really is. We don't see our own hearts and intentions for the way they really are. It is so easy for us to become misled. And we see that with his very own brothers. The very people that should know Jesus inside and out. There should, you would think if there were four people, well five, six, Mary and Joseph, right? If there were anybody in this world that would know who Jesus would and have it straight, it would be these individuals and they don't have it yet why because they're unbelievers they're not saved yet how do we know that how do we know that at this time they're unbelievers well when you go to acts 1 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is right after the ascension. They have that moment. The spirit lands on them and they realize that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. They've witnessed his resurrection. They are with the disciples. They didn't believe until they saw him risen from the dead and then they witness his ascension so at this time they know there's something special they just don't realize how special and how lucky and we have to remember James the author of James later becomes the head 
of the Jerusalem church. But at this very moment in time, when they're supposed to be remembering the sovereignty of God, the provider, complete control over everything, they just don't get it. They don't get the fact that he came to proclaim the gospel. He came to proclaim a message of faith and repentance. He came to seek the lost. cannot be separated from his work of atonement. Man, think about being Jesus' brothers. Still gets me. So as we go on through John and realize that Jesus' intentions aren't the same as their intentions of what they're wanting... For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world finds God's words offensive. They're taking offense. Think about everything we've read, everything we know. Now think about how lucky we are. We have the Bible. We have the scriptures. We know how it starts and how it ends and everything in between. They don't have that. But Jesus tell them, your motivations are wrong. And it's piercing. His words are piercing. Think about this. He's bringing sin to light. He knows the intentions of your heart. As we read the parables, as we read the other gospels, and he's having these conversations with individuals, he brings their sin to light. He shows them their shortcomings, and it's ugly. Some are convicted, and they walk away, while others are convicted, and they fall to their knees. He shows them the corruption of their heart. We're told in scripture, no man can do any good. Why is that? Because you're not God. You know, there's oftentimes we try to do many good things for people. And we look for that pat on the back. No matter how much we try to kind of separate ourselves from that we're always looking for that attaboy that pat on the back that recognition of i did a good thing yep i gave my tithe today watch me put my check in oh i provided for this family or i did that or i did this you'll see it posted all over facebook how much attention we draw to different things and doesn't mean they're necessarily bad things, the things that are getting done, but what are the motivations behind it? We have to be honest with ourselves what our motivations are sometimes. What were the motivations of Jesus' brothers? What are the motivations 
of the world. Well, the world hates him. He knows there's all this stuff going on in Judea. There's all this stuff that's beginning to be said about him. They're looking to kill him because he's bringing to light their evilness. He's bringing to light their evilness. We go to 1 Corinthians. One, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Those who proclaim to be wise that have the answers, Jesus will reveal their motivations, their true intentions, even when they don't see it themselves. And they find it offensive. How dare you call me out? How dare you embarrass me? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? That's all what you're going to hear from the Pharisees. Who do you think you are? How dare you? You know who I am? Why is it that each and every one of us at some point thinks we're better than somebody else? We're not. We're all created. We all fall under the power and authority of God. We all needed a Savior. See? So Jesus reveals the corruption of the heart, the true intent of man. He points out how they do not follow the law, how they have misunderstood the law. He shows them that the world is controlled by Satan. The activities and priorities of this world are inherently sinful. When you go out and you testify against the world, think about what happens today. You are met with hatred and antagonism. You speak out and your words used like bigot, racist. Why? Because you're speaking out against the world. You're speaking out against sin. You're speaking out against Satan. In a time they were to remember and rejoice in the abundance of Yahweh's blessings. They forget and are blinded by the very fact that God is providing for them once more. That he is making them his people. And like the Jews of past, they question God and his intentions. They do not trust his timing. My time has not come. See, his time that we're going to begin to see next week is not the same as our time. This is just an introduction that Jesus is now bringing forth his time to his death. 
The message is going to become very clear very quickly. In five short months, from large crowds of people coming to him, from people saying, heal me, you must be God. Feed me, you must be God. Provide for me, you must be God. In five short months, Jesus will die. At the hands of the very people that are supposed to have the no. Why? Because he's a threat. Because he reveals the intentions of their heart. See, when we read, we got to read for context. We got to look at those things that kind of stand out and are kind of odd. What, what do we observe? Why bring up the tabernacles? Why bring up this feast of booths? Why bring up Jesus' brothers? Because it shows us the context, especially for those of us that have siblings and the relationships it be that goes on there. Think about that if Jesus was your brother. Could do no wrong. Never got in trouble. Right? Didn't have to go to bed without dinner. Always told the truth. You think there's some animosity there somewhere along the line? Let's be honest. Right? And then his words to the people in his adult, they're just offensive. I know what you're saying is truth, but how dare you bring that to light? Deep down, we know when someone tells the truth when we're critiqued. So we look at this, the context and observations. Now we know the meaning behind this, and we'll learn more about the meaning next week because it goes on to wrap this section up or this part up. But now for the so what. Now that I've read this, what am I to do with it? So there's three takeaways. We have to remember that God's time may not line up with our time. When I want something done, or I'm expecting something in a short period of time, it might not be God's time. He might have something completely different. And I have to understand that. That God is sovereign over time, and I am not. There's nothing in this world that happens that are outside of his control. God did not just create the world, right? He did not just Genesis 1 and walk away. We oftentimes like to think that, oh, I've got all this power. I'm in control of everything. I'm in control of my life. God's the one that's in control. We're to be obedient to him. And it's hard sometimes. Because the world says one thing, and God says something different. Jesus' brothers are facing that. Jesus is going to face that more in the next couple chapters. We're going to talk about that more next week. That God's time supersedes our time and desires. His time and will are perfect in every way. Think about the word perfect. It's another one of those words we use so loosely 
but we really don't truly think about what perfect is because we can't understand perfect. We don't understand it. Every time we think about perfect, even our understanding of the word perfect is flawed because of sin. But God's isn't. His timing, his will, his desires are perfect in every way. They're uncorruptible. He can't be skewed. And therefore, we must be faithful. Not just trust, but be secure in the knowledge that God is completely sovereign. He is sovereign over everything. There is nothing outside of his control ever. When we go through hard times, realize God is in control. When we struggle, God is in control. When we have good times, God is in control. It is so easy for us today to sit there and go to God when times get tough and put him on the back burner when things are going good. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, God is in control. There's nothing outside of that, and there's nothing that's happening that he is not a part of. We might not understand why, but we understand that in God's perfect essence, in God's perfect will, in God's perfect desires, his timing is perfect, and it's happening for a reason. Jesus was always conscious of doing the Father's will according to his timetable. Everything happens according to his divine schedule. We see this in the pinnacle of history. There was Jesus' birth, his death, his resurrection, and in his return. These are critical, pinnacle moments in time. In Romans 5 and 6, Paul discusses, and what he is showing is that the Christ died at the right time for the ungodly. Because Paul continually writes about the right time. 